0: So if you got your Bibles, we're we're actually there's not one specific text, because we are covering 10 chapters this morning. I decided not to read them all. I'm going to try to tell them to you. But there is this, this incredible truth. Uh, th- this is one I hope that as you take some notes and you think about, you're going to dive into later because there's just so much good stuff here to unpack. Because on the one side... What you have in the biblical record is this incredible time of success in David's life. You know, we've looked at how just as a little shepherd boy, he was chosen to become the king. And then God gave him a great victory over Goliath. But of course, Saul is the king and begin to chase... And David now has been on the run for a number of years, and yet God was with him through all of that. And now we move into this time where God is establishing his kingdom, keeping his promises of what he had told David. So the success is just off the charts. But at the same time, there's this little story being woven through the scripture of this incredible failure that is happening in David's life. So I want to look at it today. So... Let's just kind of start taking this apart. So if you get to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, what we learn about here is that Saul is killed in battle. Now you remember, God has anointed David as, as the king, but Saul is the king. And David had two opportunities to take Saul out himself, and he wouldn't do it because he would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. That was God's issue. He was going to wait on God's timing. Well, God's timing has come. The Philistines in battle kill Saul. And so now the path is being cleared toward David becoming the king. You roll into chapter 2, and you remember he was down in the Negev. He now moves to Hebron in the land of Judah, which was his tribe. And it's there that they come together and they make him the king. In fact, uh, he, he, they, they anointed him there in Hebron for seven and a half years. He is the king over Judah. Now... You begin to have these skirmishes in chapter 3 between Judah and the rest of Israel. And each time, God gives them victory. Each time they go to battle. David's army routs the army of Israel. David gets stronger. Ishbaleth, who is the, now the king in Israel, gets weaker. In fact, it puts it like this in chapter 3, verse 1. There's a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew steadily stronger... Saul grew steadily weaker. That's what's going on. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Saul had a, uh, a top general. Uh, he, he, his name was Abner. And Abner decides he believes that David really should be the king. Remember, he David served under him. They had a relationship. Abner came to David and said, I'm going to help make you the unified king. Well, Joab was the top general for David. Joab didn't like Abner because Abner had killed his brother. So in the midst of this this guise of coming together, Joab killed Abner. And it... Could have looked like David had set this up, and Abner was beloved. But David, the way that he wept and mourned over Abner, all the people knew David had nothing to do with it. In fact, with a very interesting verse there in chapter three, it says that the people were pleased with David and all that he did. In fact, it says everything that he did pleased the people. He had God's favor. And so even in that, and so now the the kingdom starts coming together. You get to chapters 4 and 5. Ishmael is killed not by David, but by some traitors. And now the kingdom is united. So David now decides not to stay down in Hebron, but to move up to Jerusalem, move the capital to Jerusalem so it would be in the center of Israel. And so they go, they conquer Jerusalem. He sets up the kingdom there. By the way, you know, we had this, what, a year or two ago, uh, where the United States now sees Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. You know, that's not a real big thing to most of us, but that's a huge thing to the Jews. Because Jerusalem has been their capital since 2 Samuel. Way back at the time of David. That is the place. It's not Tel Aviv. It is Jerusalem. That's why it's been such a big piece. And God now begins to establish his kingdom. In fact, he has two great battles and victories over the Philistines. He actually captures their their main towns. God is giving him huge success. You get now to, uh, well, in fact, chapter 5, it says, So the elders of Israel came to the king in Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them, and then they anointed David king over Israel. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, he becomes king. He moves his kingdom to, to Jerusalem, and now God begins to give him some great victories. In chapter 6, Because now he has Jerusalem, he wants the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence to be there. It's been down to Kiriath-Jerah, and so they, they move the ark up, and with great fanfare, the people are just seeing, man, this man has a heart for God. They're rallying around him. It's an awesome thing. In chapter 7, David now decides he wants to build a temple for the Lord. You know, there's the temple or the ark is still in a tent. David has a house. He wants God to have a house. But God said, listen, no, David, you're a man of war. You can't build this temple for me, but your son will, because he'll be a man of peace But here's the thing. Because you're a man after my own heart, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. It's found in verse 16 of chapter 7. He says, your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. David, somebody... Always going to be of your lineage. uh, And honestly, when you think about Messiah, you think about Jesus. That's why he had to come from the tribe of Judah. That's why he had to be of the root of David because of that promise. And so you talk about success. Incredible success. Then you get in chapters 8 to 10. And and now as they go to war, they keep pushing the boundaries of the kingdom. All the way from up north uh, in Damascus. Uh, which which they now make an outpost, all the way down to the south of Edom, uh, which is over on the east side of the Jordan River. The furthest boundaries that Israel has ever known came under King David. Victory after victory, never defeated, incredible success. And so David, in the midst of this time, has favor with God, God's blessing, everything. I mean, you talk about the Midas touch, everything is turned into gold. And the people love him. And it sounds like a really wonderful story. The problem is, in the middle of all of this, you you just pick up these little verses here that are pointing out a failure. a, A massive failure in David's life. The failure deals with David as a husband and a father. Now, the husband piece is this. David knew that when God designed man, he he brought a man and a woman together and told them to cleave to each other, right? It was one man, one woman together for one lifetime. Uh, You saw it with with his father, Jesse, had had one wife, as best we understand. But David is, is married to Michelle, who is Saul's daughter. But he now begins to take Otherwise, and so as his kingdom grows he begins to take wives and that goes directly against deuteronomy 17 in the law of moses it was said when you get a king he shall not multiply wives for himself why or else his heart will be turned away and david even though he has a heart for god he starts adding wives and this becomes a problem and folks come on Men, is this not true? It is hard enough to learn to want learn to love one wife well, right? Figure that out. The, the love language, all of those things about her heart. It's hard enough to love her well. Can you try to do that two, three, four, five times? It doesn't work. That's why God said this is the reason a man will leave his father and mother will cleave to his wife, not to his wives, but to his wife. Because it takes all of your heart to love one of them well. And you think about how a wife's heart is to be cherished, and it's to be the princess, and to be pursued. And, and when that doesn't happen, and there's other wives, and all that going on, and all the jealousies, and the bitterness, and, and man, that's what happens. So let me just show you a couple of scripture. It says, so David, this is early on, uh, Saul's been killed, he goes up to Hebron. He's got. Michelle was not even mentioned in this because she is still up in the Northern Kingdom. It says, so David went up from there with two of his wives and Hinnoman the Jezreelites and Abigail the wife of Nabal. So he starts off with three wives, A- and then he moves to Hebron. And then we get this verse. I'm not even going to try to read it. A, it's too long. I don't have time. Secondly, I don't even want to attempt some of those names, right? But as you start reading that verse, what they're listing are the seven sons that are born to David while he's at Hebron. He's 30 years old. They all have different mothers. So we know at least seven wives at that point. Then... He goes to Jerusalem, and he sets up his kingdom there, and he becomes the king over all of Jerusalem. This is what we read. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Hebron, then more sons and daughters were born to David there. I mean, this is, is just a growing disaster. More, I mean, honestly, we're going to look at it next week with Bathsheba. David has a problem with women. And it's an issue. And sadly, it's not only an issue for him, but it's going to find itself out in, in his sons as the story unfolds. He's, he's a failure as a husband he's also a failure as a father as best we can understand as we're reading the narrative he's i mean he's a great king he's a great leader but he's he's distant He's a passive father. He doesn't get involved. He doesn't speak into their life. Now, to be fair, Solomon in Proverbs tells us some of the things he learned from his father. So it wasn't that he didn't do anything. But really the biblical record is that David is silent. David just kind of lets stuff go. I mean, you have the story. It, it happens in chapter 13 where his oldest, Amnon, falls in love with his, his half-sister, Tamar... Uh, who is the full brother of Absalom, all right? That's what happens when you start having multiple wives. It gets complicated. And he rapes Tamar. He rapes his half-sister. And we read this. When David, King David heard all these matters, he was very angry. Well, I would hope so. Your daughter just got raped. Your son has got the moral character where he would rape his own. There is a problem in the house. So he's angry. So what do you do with it? Nothing. Nothing. He never called Abnon on it. He never stepped in and disciplined him. He never stepped in and said this is wrong and tried to make it right. He didn't even, to best we know, speak a word to Tamar. He's passive. He's absent. He's silent. So, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, says, I'll take care of this. David's not going to do anything? I'll make it right. So he has a big feast, and he invites Amnon and all his brothers to come outside of Jerusalem, and there he kills Amnon. And then he flees to his grandfather's house, King Gersha, and he's there for three years. Now we get the next clip. Absalom's gone for three years, and this is what we read: the king, heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, so he grieved his death. He was gone, but Absalom's still alive, and David's heart is for him. But what does he do? Nothing. He doesn't send for him. He doesn't tell Joab to go get him. He doesn't send word, have Absalom come home for three years. He does nothing. So Joab saw what a hole it was in David's heart. And Joab kind of worked the system. So finally David said, go, go send for him. So Absalom comes home. He comes back to Jerusalem, but this is what we read. Now, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. So he gets back, and for two years, nothing. He doesn't go speak to him. He doesn't go correct him. He doesn't go reconcile with him. He doesn't go try to figure this out. It's just, he's there, they're coexisting. That's who he is as a father. He's a failure. He's a failure. And so Absalom sits by the, king, by the gate of the city. So everybody's coming in and out, and he's talking to them, and he begins to turn their hearts against his father David. Eventually, he, he has an uprising. David's got to run. He goes in and sleeps with some of David's wives. It's a, I mean, you talk about a dysfunctional family, David's family. The great king of Israel who could do no wrong. Absalom's killed. They come back. David reestablishes his kingdom. And in the midst of that, so you got to think about this. He's got all these sons, right? We, we we know at least seven, and there are a boatload more that are listed other places. I decided not to get into that. Uh, number one is dead, Amnon. Number three is dead, Absalom. We don't know what happened to number two. He's silent. He must be like his dad, I guess. Uh, but you get to the end of his life, and now number four... decides that he wants to be king. But David had already said that Solomon would be the king. And we read this. It says, now Adonijah, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself and said, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done this? So here's a Adonijah trying to set himself up as king, and David knows about it, and he doesn't say anything. He's a failure as a father. He lets them run wild. He lets them do what they want to do. He's absent. He's passive. And so, folk, in the midst of all the success, in the midst of becoming one of the greatest kings the world has ever seen, the greatest king that Israel will ever know, Before Messiah shows up, David is also a huge failure. Now, folk, there's lots of takeaways. I'm going to try to boil it down to five because I think there's some really important lessons here. The first one is this, that establishing and maintaining the right priorities is key to long-term success. You know, how sad it is that David had his eyes on the wrong ball that he saw being the king as being the important thing, and yet it was his heritage that was going to outlast it all that he failed so miserably yet. And that's what happens in our life. We get our eyes on the wrong things, and and somehow success and things and houses and bank accounts and all those become the goal, and we miss out on what's really important. And so what's incredibly important for all of us is to establish right priorities, now I was thinking about this, the, um, I, I'm privileged in, in this part of my life to be able to do a lot of coaching, a lot of mentoring, especially with pastors and things on the idea of leadership and to teach leadership principles and, and to think, how do we grow and become as a leader? And there's, and if you're ever with me in those circles, there's, there's one story I tell off, I probably have told it here because to me, it, it's probably the most basic and important thing and that it's about right priorities and the story is this there was a there was a professor in a university who was teaching an MBA class about leadership and he pulled out from behind his his desk one of those big old pickle bottles any of you remember old enough to remember the big pickle bottles you go in the little corner store you get the big pickles and they're heat by the way you can still get them at Costco they're really good Uh, but the pickle jar was empty but he set it up on his desk and then he pulled out two big buckets that were filled with these huge, I mean, bigger than his hand type thing of river rock. And he took these big rocks and he began to put them into the pickle uh, jar until it was up to the top. And then he looked at the class and he said, is, is, is the jar full? And they said, yeah, it's full. You can't get another one of those, those big old rocks in there. Well, he reaches under his desk, and now he pulls out a bucket, not of big rocks, but of gravel. So he takes the gravel, and he starts to kind of shake it over, and, you know, hits the pickle jar a little bit, and it falls down, and he gets it in. And now he's got gravel up to the top, and he says, okay, tell me, is the pickle jar full? They're a little hesitant, but they go, yeah, yeah, it looks full." So then he reaches under his desk, and out now comes a bucket of sand. So he's got the sand, he's putting it in, he's hitting the pickle jar, he's shaking it up, he's putting the sand in. Now sand's to the top. Is the pickle jar full? By now they kind of knew, probably not. So sure enough, he reaches under, he gets another bucket, this is water. He begins to pour, you can kind of see the water go through the the rock and the sand and all the way. But finally the water got to the top. Is the pickle jar full? Yeah, we really think it's full this time. So he asked them, he said, so what is the moral that I'm trying to teach you here? What's the, what's the, the takeaway from this illustration? Ah, I got that. You know, no how, matter how busy your life is, you can always get something more in. He goes, that is wrong. That is incorrect. <laughs> Somebody else said, well, you know, just sometimes you just got to shake things up, you know, give it a little. And, and you can always kind of fit a little bit more into your schedule. He goes, no, you, you fail." the moral of the story is that if you're gonna get the big rocks in they have to go in first it's one of the most important leadership principles you will ever know if you're gonna get the important things in your life they have to go in first so what are the important things what are those priorities well the thing is we could do a little group study here over the next hour we could do a lot of things The truth is, the Bible's already told us, really simple. What are those priorities? What are the big rocks that have got to go into my life? What are the ones that have to be first and second and third? The Bible tells us, number one, Jesus has to be number one, right? That's the first rock that's got to go into my jar. That's the first thing that's got to go into my schedule. That's the first thing that has to go into my priorities. How am I growing in my relationship with Christ? How am I spending time with Him? How am I putting myself in relationships that are helping me grow? That has got to be number one You know, I I remember there's a song out there God doesn't play second fiddle Only first chair In fact, he gave us ten commandments You remember what the first one is? You will have no other God before me I have to be number one Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength That is number one That's got to be the first thing In your priority list The second thing then is family family is that priority. Uh, you know for this reason a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife. Now, now here's the thing and, and to be honest with you this is where a lot in our culture get this wrong especially in our even our church culture that you know in family you have a spouse and then you have kids. And the biblical order is your spouse is to A the kids are to B. In our culture, kids become 2A. And I'm here to tell you that is out of the biblical order. If your kids take more time and energy and focus and attention so that your spouse becomes number two to them, you're doing it wrong. That's not God's intent. God never told you to leave your father and mother to cleave to your kids. It was to cleave to your wife. And to be honest with you, can I tell you, long-term for your spouse to be 2B doesn't work. Because when 2A leaves and they do leave, I'm hoping still one of these days, you're stuck with 2B. You don't want to be stuck with 2B. You want to live forever with 2A. And the greatest thing you can do for your kids is put them in a culture where their mom and dad love each other and that security that they know that will never be broken that's where kids flourish that's priority number two then priority three or beyond is the job and the career that's where it comes now let me be really clear here that doesn't mean that job and working and and trying to be successful is unimportant i believe god created us to work I believe that God created us to work hard. I think God wants us to be successful. I think he created us uniquely so that we can succeed at different things. And, and this whole idea out there of, a, you know, you got to have a work-life balance. Well, folks, to be honest with you, I think that's like a Unicorn. I don't think you find this perfect work-life balance. Why? Because first of all, it's not a matter of balance. It's a matter of priorities. Jesus has to be number one. Family has to be number two. And then career and everything else, number three. But in that, there are times when career takes a little bit more time than what you would like to give it. And in those moments, you do that. But you understand it's not a higher priority. It's just a season. It's a short season here. You have those conversations. But you always keep it in the right place. Family's most important. Yes, I know that right now it's taking a little bit more time than I would like to give, but it's a short season. And to be honest with you, if it begins to affect family, then we change that. Priorities. You've got to make sure that you stay focused on the right thing. Second takeaway is this. Career success can mask failures in other important areas of your life. Because, you see, our culture, we love successes we love the people that turn companies around we love the salesmen that set it on fire we love the people who go out there man they can make a buck and we celebrate them and we give them watches and plaques and we do all this and I've been around way too many people who at the end of their life have got fine bank accounts and they've got awards on the wall but they are completely alone because they have alienated everybody in their life And the world says they're a success and they know they're a failure. It can mask. That's why, folks, you you need to have these conversations. That's why having a spouse and and being able to talk, how how are we doing? How are we doing in our relationship? How are we doing with our kids? How are we doing with the Lord? Having those people in your life. And if you're not married, then have others that can speak in. Am I keeping my priorities right? Because you don't want to get to the end of the race and find out you were running on the wrong path. Number three, failure with God and family lasts way, way longer than success in a career. You know, so David has all of this success. He pushes the boundaries of Israel farther than they will ever be. And you know how long that lasted? Depending where, between about 40 to 60 years. And then it was all lost and it was never regained. Do you know how long the dysfunction in David's family lasted? generations. Because Solomon, we're going to follow his lineage. And man, guess what? (laughs) All the way down the tree, man, they got problems with women. They got problems with wrong priorities. It, It just, it screwed up his whole life. His whole family tree. Make sure you stay focused on the right priorities. Number four is that if you fail with God and your family there's chances are that your kids are going to fail at those same stress points. I I don't mean to be unkind. I'm just, it's it's honest. And here's the thing, folks. I'm not here trying to make anybody feel guilty because the truth is we've all failed, right? We've all had wrong priorities. I know I have. None of us are perfect. I get that. But we also got to understand that those failure points, there's a better chance my kids are going to fail there if I've failed there. For instance, you know it. There's a family who the father's an alcoholic. The chances of a kid being an alcoholic go up dramatically. Isn't that not true? Or be addicted to some drug. If there's a if there's a family where where the parents are, are are divorced, the chances of their kids ultimately getting divorced later on goes up dramatically. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but the chances go up. If if there's a family is run by by somebody who is just incredibly driven by success and and, and driven by that kind of a culture, uh, so that they ignore their family, chances are that's what, it's just we reproduce well. David's got issues with women. He's got issues with not tying into his kids and teaching them right and wrong and it follows him from generation to generation in fact you read about solomon who finds out so david had a lot of wives right (laughs) solomon had 700 wives 300 concubines and then notice the next phrase because it's really in relation to that deuteronomy 17 passage and in fact they did Turn his heart away from the Lord. His sons failed where he failed, even greater. Now, I got to be done. But here's here's the big point. Here's my big takeaway. Because I don't want anybody walking out of here feeling guilty today. This is not about feeling guilty. Because it's about feeling guilty, we'd all feel guilty. We've all had wrong priorities. We've all screwed things up. But I want you to walk out of here with a plan. Because the truth is, there is a really simple plan that God has put together how to deal with this. Because he knows we're falling, he knows we're broken, he knows we're going to... So how do we fix it? And it's really simple. It's repentance... It's confession, it's reconciliation, forgiveness, and obedience. Let me walk through them. First of all, repentance. That's a word that's misunderstood. Repentance is just simply agreeing with God, changing your mind. I thought that this was most important. God says it wasn't. I agree with him. He was right. I was wrong. That's where it starts. And until you do that, you're never going to make any progress on this. You've got to understand the way I've been going, the way I've been dealing with this is sin. I've got to agree with God. His way is best. Then confession. Second, so when I, when I understand I've been wrong, I confess it to him because ultimately he's the one that I've sinned against. But now I've got to confess it. Who are the other ones? When I've, you know, I've put my career ahead of my kids, I've got to go confess it to them. I've got to go try to make this right. That's part of that reconciliation pace. I, gotta, I need to go ask for forgiveness. And I can remember, sadly, more times than I'd like to remember when, me, I got home and, and I overreacted to my kids. Not, and God worked on my heart and I saw man I'd overreacted and I agreed with him and I confessed it to him but now I gotta go confess it to my kids and you know that walk of shame down to the room and knock it on the door and say listen I'm so sorry I, I overreacted I'm sorry will you forgive me it's tough but it's the right thing to do now honestly there's people that you can try to reconcile with that don't want to be reconciled I get that and honestly, that's not on you. Whether they accept it or not, that's on them. But you've got to do as best as it, it lies upon you to reconcile it. You know, Jesus said if you bring your gift to the altar and know somebody's got you know, something against you, go make it right, then come back. If they, if they don't want to forgive, if they don't want to accept, that's on them. But as best as it, you try to reconcile. That's why I even added the whole idea of forgiveness because some of you have been hurt. Some of you have had folks that had wrong priorities. Some of you have been run over. And, 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 you know, you can hold a grudge, but by the way, that's sin. Jesus said, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And then the reality is, is that none of us can go back and change yesterday. I can't. Yesterday was yesterday. But I have today. And today, I can walk in obedience. I I, I can confess yesterday. I can try to reconcile it with those who are hurt. But I can't change what I did. But today, I can follow Jesus. Today, I can walk in obedience. Today, I can get my priorities straight. Today, I can start doing what God has asked me to do. It's a simple process. Don't sit there and mourn yesterday. Deal with it. Get, Get closure. And then today... Follow Jesus today. Walk in obedience was what He's called you to do.